I'm so glad that y'all are listening and taking notes and being good students of the Word because uh, I, I need that, you need that, and it's important that we do so. But last uh, Sunday, uh, we quoted uh, Zechariah chapter 33, and I forgot what verses they were. But uh, anyway, it's Zechariah only has 12 chapters. So I, uh, I put that in your, in your notes, but it's supposed to be Jeremiah 33, not Zechariah 33. There are 33 plus chapters in Jeremiah and not in Zechariah. And so I wanted to correct that before we uh, start up. Uh, some of you uh, pointed that out last week, and I said, I'll look into it. I've looked into it, and I was wrong. All right. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, I desire above all things that my name should be concealed and that none be called by the name of Luther, but of Christian. What is Luther, he says? My doctrine is not mine, but it's Christ. I was not crucified for any. How come it to pass that I, who am but a filthy, stinking bag of worms, that any of the children of God should be denominated from, from my name. Away with these names. Let us be denominated from Christ, from whom we have our doctrine. Think about what Martin Luther had to say. He suggested that the church would have to be named filthy, stinking bag of worms, because that was what he was. Inevitably, as you know, Luther's followers did name a church after him against his wishes. And I guess they thought that Lutheran church had a better ring to it than filthy, stinking bag of worms church. But really, folks, that's what the church is. Luther realized that he was a poor example of righteousness and therefore not worthy of being the namesake of a church or a movement. He considered himself nothing more than just a filthy, stinking bag of worms. And I remind you this morning that Jesus is our model of righteousness. He alone is our example of what is so good in life. Jesus alone is the only one who saves and anyone who's placed on a pedestal in life will be knocked off. So we might as well follow Luther's example and step down ourselves, confessing our sins and our imperfections, making us all examples of the grace of our God. And so we take ourselves off the pedestal and place Jesus in his rightful place on it. Because Jesus is preeminent over all things. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Father, thank you that it is your words that we talk about. It's your words that we speak of. It's from your holy Bible that we get our guidance and our direction and our path of life. And so, Father, we treasure your words this morning as we study this wonderful book of Hebrews. And Father, help us today through your Holy Spirit to understand your words and, Father, help us to apply your words to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Last week in our study of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we looked at two ways that God has revealed himself as it related to the superiority of Jesus. And the first way, remember, was hearing God's revelation from long ago. In other words, through the creation narrative in Genesis, through the Old Testament covenants in the book of Exodus, and in the book of the law, and to the Old Testament prophets, God has been actively speaking his redemptive plan from creation to the here and now. The gospel came to us, the Bible says, at various times and in various ways through the authority and the authenticity of Scripture. But the Old Testament, remember, isn't the stopping point. The fact is that the Old Testament is in need of a messianic conclusion. And we find that conclusion, praise God, in these last days, as the Bible says, that God revealed himself in the last days through Jesus Christ. That's his complete revelation. It is Jesus who's been appointed heir over all that the Father possesses because it was Jesus who was there at the very time when all creation was spoken into being. And as we come now to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we not only find that Jesus is superior above all creation, but he is preeminent also over all creation. And in your outline, I've got the word preeminence, because some of you say, what does that mean? Well, biblically, it means that Jesus is first in everything. Jesus is first in importance. He is first in honor. He is first in exaltation. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. He is the head of the church and the firstborn from the dead. That means he was the first resurrection. And Jesus was here before the world and everything else was created. And he himself, by the way, isn't a created be being, but he is the creator. And Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.18. I love this verse of scripture. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. This is an extremely important theological statement. You know why? Because it firmly answers the question of who Jesus is. Christianity says that Jesus is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God in flesh. And through his divinity and being God himself, that separates us as followers of Jesus from all other religions and all other cults in the world. And it goes back to the fact of who you believe Jesus is. And that's why this false doctrine of Chrislam, that is a bunch of nonsense. That is a demonic doctrine that has infiltrated some of our churches. It is wrong, it is dangerous, because it devalues Jesus as being less than God. And I will tell you, there can be no blending, absolutely no blending of Islam and Christianity, because Islam's believe Jesus to be no more than just a prophet of God on an equal standing with Muhammad. Our Christian faith is more than that. Our Christian faith is based purely on the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus as God in flesh, 
No one stands equal to Jesus this morning. And don't let people tell you that there's a mixture of religion today because there is no mixture. Jesus stands alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way but to the Father but through him. And keep that in mind when you hear all this nonsense being talked about in America today. So this morning, we examine this beautiful book, starting with verse 3, Hebrews chapter 1, and turn with me your Bibles. I hope that you brought your Bibles. Listen, we are a Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church. If you don't bring your Bibles, you are off target, and you say, well, I've never brought a Bible to church. Well, guess what? You've never been to this church, so bring your Bible. We're going to talk about three distinct things. The preeminence of Jesus over three distinct things this morning. Number one, the preeminence of Jesus means he is over all created beings in the physical realm. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This verse, by the way, is a description of who Jesus is in comparison with all other created beings, all other created things in the world. And it shows us how the Son of God reveals the Father to us. And this very first phrase is important. We're going to take this phrase by phrase. You don't mind doing that, do you? Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory. Now, some of you may have the word radiance. It's from the Greek word meaning to send forth light. And this idea of radiance goes back to the notion of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. You see, the Shekinah glory of God was a shining, visible glory that demonstrated in the Old Testament the presence and glory of God. And by the way, it is not Exodus 13.1. Aha, I did my homework on your notes. It's Exodus 13.21. I forgot a one. Exodus 13.21, Exodus 40, verses 34 through 55, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11. In other words, here Jesus in the Old Testament represents the manifestation of God in all of God's glory. The fact is that no one can see God, and the only radiance, the only brightness from God that reaches us is through Jesus. And the fact of that is that we would never be able to see God without Christ. We would never be able to enjoy his glory without Jesus. It was only Jesus that showed and shone brightly to all the world, the radiance and the brightness of his light. John 8, 12. Remember during the Feast of Tabernacles? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. Aren't you glad you don't have to walk in darkness anymore? But shall have the light of life. The great tragedy, of course, is that most people don't want to see, much less accept, and live in God's light. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. I'm sorry, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. No one wants to see that. You see the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? The devil. He has blinded the minds. He has blinded the hearts of those unbelieving. And they cannot see that Jesus is the light, that Jesus is the radiance, that he is the brightness of all things. Yet, listen folks, those who receive his light can say proudly, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has come into our lives giving us light not just to see God, but to know God as well. Now that next phrase, the express image of his person. The fact is that Jesus is the exact expression of the Father's nature. He shares the Father's divine nature. This is where Jesus is different than us who are created. Though we are created in the image of God, both male and female, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it doesn't mean that we share in the divine essence of God. In other words, God is God, God is the creator, and we are his creation. We are created in his image, but not an exact representation of God, because Jesus is the exact representation of God. Actually, as it says here, the exact expression of the Father's nature. And so we find that that word translated from the Greek language means it's an impression made by a die or a stamp on a seal. The design is reproduced like on a wax seal back in the day. In other words, Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are divine. Jesus is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. Colossians 1.15 confirms that fact. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that word firstborn doesn't mean that he was born. Doesn't mean he was created. He's, he is the creator. And he can't be the creator and be created at the same time, right? So instead, the word can mean preeminence in position or rank. Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he has the preeminence and possesses the right of inheritance over all creation. And to further drive that point home, that word image. This is where we get our English word for icon. It means a precise copy, an exact reproduction. Jesus is the exact reproduction of God the Father. Now the next phrase. It's going to get more exciting. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus not only made all things and will someday inherit all things that are his, but he, which is all things, but he holds them all together in the meantime. As we sing, oftentimes he's got the whole world in his hands. I will tell you, not only does he have the whole world in his hands, he's got the whole universe in his hands, he's got the whole created order in his hands, he is in control of all things. And that Greek word for uphold means to support, to maintain. It's used here in the present tense. You know what it implies? Continuous action. It means that he is continually holding all things together. Continually. Eternally holding all things together. This climate change nonsense, in order to throw us yet into another world crisis so that globalists can take over, listen, it isn't really getting much traction. 
For us who follow Jesus, I think we can say with confidence that our Jesus has upheld this earth over the centuries, over all time. He, he holds the planet in his hands. He holds the universe in his hands. And listen, when he created it, he called it good. I don't need some numbskull telling me that there's a global problem of climate change and we must all go to electric cars. Give me a break. The fact is this. If the physical laws that our Lord has set in place vary just slightly, we would be in a mess. For example, we know the surface of the temperature of the sun. You know how hot it is? 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer to us, we would burn up. If it were any farther away, we would freeze. Our planet is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees, providing us with four seasons, except in South Texas. We're the only ones in, in, in the world that miss out on four seasons. We only have two of them, I believe, a hot and hotter. But we really do have four seasons in South Texas. We have them, but they're just not really evident very much. But I will tell you, if our earth wasn't tilted at just the right angle, vapors from the ocean would move north and south and develop monstrous continents of ice. If the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would literally cover the land completely twice a day. How does our planet and universe stay in such a delicate balance? It is Jesus who sustains it and monitors, monitors it all the time, 724. And he also upholds all the scientific laws he has given us to understand it. The last phrase sums up the actions of Jesus. First, what did he do, do for us? What did he do? The Bible says, when he had by himself purged our sins. What a great statement. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, yet Jesus alone went to the cross, died a death that we deserved, and took the penalty of our sins upon himself. Think about it. It was a wondrous work when Jesus created the world and the universe. It's a wondrous work that he sustains it. But listen, it's a greater work in purging us from all of our sins. Hebrews 7.27 confirms this fact. The Bible says that Jesus does not need daily to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. This he did once for all. Jesus was sinless. He didn't have any sin. He was the perfect sacrifice. The Bible is clear that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 and that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. So that's the first part, what he did for us. Secondly, what he did when he was finished. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you know that the right hand of any monarch, any king, is the side of power? It's the side of honor. It's the sign of exaltation. 
And the marvelous thing about this statement is simply that Jesus sat down as the perfect high priest in contrast to the priestly procedure in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant. For you see, there were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple sanctuaries. The priest had nowhere to sit because God knew it would never be appropriate for him to sit down. You see, the priest's responsibility under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, his responsibility was to sacrifice, 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 sacrifice again. So the priest offered sacrifices daily and never sat down because the, his job was never fully completed. But Jesus offered one sacrifice and said, it is finished. And he sat down with God the Father on the right-hand side. And it signifies four things. Number one, he sat down as a sign of honor. You know that at the, at, at every knee shall bow one day, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. So one of the things that it signified, he sat down as a sign of honor. Secondly, he sat down as a sign of authority. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Thirdly, he sat down to rest. His work was done. What happened at the end of creation when he created all things by the words that he spoke? What happened? He rested. And he said, it is good, all good. My creation is all good. And the same thing after the cross, after it was finished, he sat down to rest. Hebrews 10, 12. But Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Number four, it signified that Jesus sat down to intercede for us. Oh, I like this one. Do you understand, folks, that when Jesus went to be with the Father, went to take his place at the right hand of the Father, once he sat down, that he intercedes for us, he prays for us every day. Did you know that? That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I need somebody to pray for me. I need somebody. Listen, it's okay to ask people to pray, but some of those people forget. But Jesus never forgets. Oh, he prays for us all the time. He prays for us seven days a week, 24 hours a day. He's always praying for us. He's always uplifting us in prayer to the Father in heaven. And listen, we live in a world today, do we not, that wants to minimize Jesus in any form. It's common to hear people refer to Jesus as a good teacher or religious leader, but he is so much more than that. Jesus is preeminent over all created beings and things in this physical realm. And as followers of Christ, we should be quick to stand up and give him the praise that he deserves. We should want the entire world to know what the creator of the world who he is, and who's holding it all together. Let's shout it on the mountaintop. Let's shout it from the rooftops that Jesus is preeminent over all created things, all created beings, all things in the physical realm that we see. Secondly, the preeminence of Jesus means he is over all given names under heaven. Oh, I like this. 
Look at Hebrews 1.4. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This verse, by the way, transitions us into an extended section, section of, of Scripture here. And it argues for the preeminence of Christ in relation to angels. And this may seem very strange to us as to why the writer spends a significant amount of time demonstrating that Christ is superior to angels. But when we examine the historical background, we begin to understand it. Did you know that literature from the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament demonstrated an intense interest and focus on angels? You probably didn't know that. You probably thought it was just 400 years of silence. There were, there were 400 years of silence from prophets. But during that time, there was literature written about angels. And some of the theological reflection during those days was good, but it was mixed with error. Many people in Israel considered angels to be both God's messengers and Israel's protectors. Many Jews looked at angels as those who could come as an army of God to rescue and vindicate their nation. So this literature between testaments also, by the way, gave rise to the notion of personal angels, or what we might call guardian angels. And by the way, I believe in guardian angels. I believe that God protects us. I believe that somehow, some way, there are angels around us that gives us protection every day of the week. How many times have you almost been in an automobile accident and you've just missed being hit, right? And you wonder, well, that was just, no, 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 no. God was protecting you. He protects us. God protects us. And due to the fascination with angels, the author of Hebrews, writing to a Jewish audience, remember, who was familiar with the literature between both the Old Testament and New Testament. They needed some help to understand theologically what angels were all about and Christ's relationship to them. And this verse clearly sets the truth clear, does it not? That Christ is preeminent to angels because of the name that he inherited, the Bible says. A more excellent one than theirs. What name has Christ inherited? Well, there's two possibilities. Number one, the name of Lord. And this follows the logic when you look at Philippians chapter 2 where Paul tells us that Christ had been given the title of Lord, a title belonging at that point before Jesus only to God himself. Now understand, this doesn't mean that there was a time when Jesus wasn't Lord. It doesn't mean that there was a time when Jesus wasn't divine. He's been fully God from the beginning and will be out throughout all eternity. But as we saw last week, the writers of Hebrew chapter 1, verse 2, whoever the writer is, had already indicated that Jesus was there with God creating all things. But inheriting the more excellent name, Lord, sets Jesus above those who are not just in the physical realm, but also the angels of heaven as well and of hell as well in the supernatural realm as well. Also, in the second name, Son, the context of Hebrews indicates that the name Jesus inherited the name Son. Again, this does not mean that Jesus was adopted into divine sonship. He was always and always has been the eternal Son of God. But Son, inherited. Lord, Son. Think about those two words for a few moments. A name that was inherited. A name above all other names given 
under heaven and under heaven. One of the great battles of history I was reading this week was fought in a place in Greece at a place called Thermopolis. And some of you may know, I've never heard of Thermopolis. But it was there that 300 Spartans, they said, held off a vast Persian army for days. But eventually all of them perished. And did you know that Greek school children are still required to memorize the names of those 300 brave soldiers that perished there? I'm going to tell you. Jesus met the enemy in the dark path of Calvary. He was alone. It was Jesus who single-handedly defeated the enemy, defeated death, defeated hell, defeated the grave three days later. So think about it. We only have one name to remember, and his name is Jesus. And we sang about his name well ago. By the way, Dee and I do not talk during the week about what he's going to do up here or what I'm going to do up here, but that's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. The name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's his name that's been given over all of the names under heaven that gives Jesus the preeminence over all. And thirdly, the preeminence of Jesus means he's over all spiritual beings in the spiritual realm. The first thing I want to point out to you in verses 5 through 14 is what angels are and what they do according to Scripture. Angels are spirit beings, and they do not possess flesh and bones as we do. But they do appear to have some sort of bodily form. And whatever heavenly form they have, they are capable of appearing in human form, right? We've seen that through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Hebrews 13.2. I love this verse. We are warned to be careful in how we treat strangers. Why is that? The Bible says we might be entertaining angels without knowing it. Angels may also appear in other forms, like the angel who appeared at the empty tomb of Jesus, according to Matthew 28, verses 3 through 4. Remember, he, he appeared in dazzling, bright glory. So much so, the Bible says the guards shook for fear and became like dead men. Angels are also highly intelligent, and they have emotions. How do we know that? According to Luke 15.10, angels rejoice when one sinner is saved and born again. They rejoice over that. Angels can also speak to people in the physical realm, as recorded in many places in both the Old Testament and New Testament. Angels do not marry and are unable to procreate, according to Matthew 22, verses 28 through 30. In other words, the Bible makes no mention of any angels being added to the original creation of angels. God created them all at once, each one with a unique responsibility and identity. By the way, angels are not subject to death, and though a third of them fell from heaven along with Satan himself, Revelation 12, 4, it is obvious they didn't die, they weren't annihilated, but they still exist as demonic spiritual beings. 
Y'all need to remember these things because next week we're going to talk about something that's going to throw you for a loop. It is apparent that angels were created before men and women. They have been around longer than mankind and evidently number in the trillions. Remember the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7.10? He saw thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads standing before God. John in the book of Revelation 5.11 also speaks of a vast heavenly multitude that included thousands upon thousands of angels. Angels are also highly, and I say highly organized, and they're divided into ranks. And the various ranks have certain responsibilities, supervisory responsibilities, over thrones, over dominions, over principalities, powers, and authorities. Among the special classes of angels are cherubim, seraphim, and those described simply as living creatures. They are more powerful than men. And we must call in the power of God to deal with the fallen demonic angels all around us. I remind you that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against those principalities in the high places. By the way, when you get when something happens for you and an individual within the church or you and an individual within your family, it is not that individual. You're battling something you can't see. But you can sure battle it. Angels can move and act with incredible speed. Keep that in mind. Sometimes described with wings, suggesting fast travel. Some angels in Scripture have names like Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Michael is the head of the armies of heaven, and Gabriel is called the mighty one in Scripture. Lucifer was the name Satan. That's what he had before he fell. Lucifer fell from heaven, took a third of the angels with him. That's why we still have demons around. By the way, do not be surprised that there's still demons around. I've heard people say, well, didn't the de-, you know, listen, I'm going to tell you something. There's more than just mental health going on in America. You stand, when, you stand, when you pull up to a red light and somebody's talking to somebody and there's nobody there, there's something wrong with that person. And I can guarantee you some of it is spiritual. It is spiritual. Now, sure, some of them are, are mental health patients, but it is spiritual in nature. And there's something demonic wrong with that person. And that person probably needs deliverance. Not money, but he needs deliverance. I dare you this week to park your car and say, listen, I don't have money, but I have Jesus. I can hear it now. Oak Hills Church has gone crazy. They're stopping every corner. Angels minister to God and do His bidding. They're spectators and participants in God's mighty work, both in redemption and judgment. They minister to Christ, remember, in His deepest, darkest times. At the conclusion of Christ's temptation, the Bible says the angels came and ministered to Him, Matthew 4, 11. And that's just the beginning. Let's look at the passage. Three ways, and we will hurry and get you to Sunday school. Trust me. 
Three ways Jesus is preeminent over the spiritual being. Number one, Jesus is exalted as the Son of God and worthy of worship above angels. Angels aren't to be worshipped. Saints aren't to be worshipped. Mary's not to be worshipped. It is Jesus that we worship. And look at these verses of Scripture. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. These passages of Scripture come from the Old Testament. Psalm 2-7 from the writings. 2 Samuel 7-14 from the prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 32-43 from the law. And he starts here with a rhetorical question. He makes the point that God never makes any claim of sonship for any of the angels. An angel may serve as God's agent. He may serve as God's messenger, witness, but not God's son. Only Jesus, God's only son, is worthy enough to be called the son of God. And then he quotes 2 Samuel 7. The author shows that this sonship refers not only to Jesus as the eternal son of God, but to Jesus as the messianic son of God, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. And the final quotation in Hebrews 1.6 from Deuteronomy chapter 32.43 is very interesting. In its original context, the statement about the angels bowing down in worship in the Old Testament was in reference to who? God. Yahweh God. Now the author of Hebrews identifies the one that they bow down to as Jesus. In other words, the angels worship Christ. It's not Christ who worships the angels. He's the exalted and only Son of God. He's not only exalted above the angels, but he is worshipped by them as well. And that's proof that Jesus is preeminent above the created angels of God. Secondly, Jesus reigns as King of kings and is creator of all things, including the angels. Look at verse 7. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? This comes from Psalm 104, verse 4. And the psalmist uses exalted language to describe the angelic hosts. They are a flame of fire, and they enjoy God's presence and carry out God's purposes. But they're only servants in the court of God. This contrast is made even more explicit in the next verse. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. It's made clear here that though the angels surround the throne, it is Jesus, the Son of God, seated on the throne. Not them. It is Jesus who is superior and preeminent above the angels because it is Jesus on the throne, crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. Now look at verses 10 through 12. And you, Lord, talking about Jesus, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. 
quote from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Again, through the Holy Spirit inspiring the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews identifies the Son, Jesus, with God the Father. And we again see this passage highlighting the distinction that exists between the creature, the angels, and the Creator. And this contrast is specifically between things that are permanent and things that are temporal. By the way, when you buy a new car and you think it's all that and bag of chips, it's going to wear out one day. If you've got a bunch of kids, it's going to wear out sooner than one day. Have you ever gotten a new car, you're proud of it, and then your baby in the back seat decides to throw up on your car? And that, that's never good. But those are things that are going to fade away. Jesus is forever. He is eternal. His years have no end. He does not change. Thirdly, Jesus is superior over angels because of his everlasting reign. We conclude with verses 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Shall I make your enemies your footstool? Good question, right? Which of the he never said that to angels? This quotation communicates that God promised the Messiah utter dominion over the world, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And then he draws the contrast in verse 14 between the reigning Jesus as king and the angelic servants. When he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. Angels are sent to minister to us. Did you know that? And what's the ministry? Let me give you a brief, brief course in angelology. It may be helpful here. The commercialized, cute, chubby, Cupid-like angels seen in greeting cards especially Valentine's cards, could not be further from the biblical portrait of angelic beings. When an angel shows up in Scripture, people fall down in sheer terror. Luke chapter 2, verse 9, the response of the shepherds. Matthew 28, 4, the response of the Roman guards at the empty tomb. Here's the bottom line. Both the Old Testament and New Testament make it clear that angels are created by God. And while they have perhaps distinct privileges, even extraordinary power, they are by no means divine. Angels reside in the heavenly realm, and those who have fallen, they not only are in the bottom realm in the world today, they've fallen, they have tempted us, they try to condemn us, they try to get us off track I will tell you that there is more power in Jesus than in them today. And I call out every demon of hell to come on because I've got the power of God. I've got the power of Jesus. I've got the name of Jesus on me. He calls me himself. He calls me his child. He calls you his child. And may Jesus be glorified today and know that no demon has control over you. Never, never, never. Never. Next week, we're going to take a break from Hebrews and speak on deception when it comes to fallen angels. It's going to be weird. It's going to be a strange message. Probably one of the, you say, well, that's, that's, that's every Sunday. It's always weird. Now, I promise you, next week, you're going to be blown away. 
so you don't want to miss it. I'm not going to reveal anything to you. I'm just going to say that. So you can come back and say, I'm here for the strange. I'm here for the weird. I want to hear what pastor has to say that's weird and strange. But I will tell you, folks, that we are under, in America and in the world, great deception. We need to be paying attention. Things are being reported. Things are being done that are deceptive and are trying to discourage you, put fear in your heart, give you anxiety, give you stress, and we're not going to have any of it. We're not going to have any of it. We are children of the living God. That's why several years ago I turned the TV off when it came to the news. Some people say, did you hear about this? No, I haven't heard about it. What, what, well, this happened over here. This happened. Because I will tell you, the news media is at the center of the deception. If you haven't already figured that out, you better start figuring it out. That's not just the nightly news anymore. But I call it the nightly deception. Weekend. Well, anyway, I can't go on. <laughs> That'll whet your appetite, I hope. I wonder today, though, if there are ones here who don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Oh, you could have been in church all your life. You could be sitting there and holding your Bible and looking all good, but inside you're really a wreck because you've not placed your life in the hands of Jesus. But he wants you to do so today. Won't you come and give your life to Christ today? Some of you are here today. You say, Pastor, listen, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. I just need prayer. We'll be glad to pray with you. We'll be able to seek God's face. We want to seek the face of God today together. And our Jesus who intercedes for us every day that we live. We want to seek his face today. You're here. You need to pray. We'll pray with you. We'll be here for you. There may be some here today, you say, Pastor, this is the church for us. This is the place where God has led us. We'd like to join this church today. We want to be part of this church family. We invite you to come as well. Oh, gosh, God is so good. There's so much in Scripture. And Jesus is preeminent over all. Over all. Over every physical being that was created over every spiritual being that was created. He has a name above all names, the name of Jesus, the greatest name known to man. Let's stand together and pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. Thank you, Lord God, for how you have blessed us through your word. And Father, we pray that we'll take this word with us this week. For Father, we know that we're running out of time, that Jesus is coming back soon. And Father, we need to tell other people about how wonderful he is. Father, give us a good witness this week to those around us as your Holy Spirit leads us. Father God, may you have glory and honor through our lives. And bless this invitation time, Lord, here. We ask you, Lord, to convict, to bring, to lead and guide by your Holy Spirit those who need Jesus today as Lord and Savior. We look forward, Father, to seeking your face in prayer this morning. Lord, we pray for those that need prayer this morning in this place. 
Lord God, bless, we pray, this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. As God speaks to your heart today, you come as we sing.